This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 5. This is Writing Excuses, setting goals for your career. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Victoria. I'm Dan. I'm realizing that I should have set more goals. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a really interesting question we've gotten here that I don't think we've ever covered on the podcast before, uh, which makes me excited whenever we get a question that spirals us in some new direction. Um, what kind of goals? <laughs> Especially one that depresses me. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of goal setting do you do in your career? This is something we have talked about a little bit with Dongwon. Okay. Uh, but... I am very interested to hear what Victoria has to say about it because I feel like she is one of my models that I try to follow because you you do so much career planning for I'm a, yourself. I'm a Slytherin, right? So I'm both very <laughs> ambitious and very prone I'm to— I'm a Slytherin too. I love it. Yeah. I love it. This side of the table, we mm-hmm. like to plan our futures in very Hufflepuff. specific ways. Well, I also think I'll probably have some differing or interesting answers only because I started when I was 21. I'm now 32. I have had many hills and valleys, and it has taught me to be very intentional about the way that I set goals and that I try and create and shape this weird thing called a career. So give us some examples. <laughs> um, well, I think it's really important to set both short-term and long-con. I am a firm believer in both, but I had a, an upset early on in my career, three books in, where everything went terribly, terribly wrong. I was 25 years old and about to quit. And I decided before I quit, I was going to try and write one more book. I was going to throw out any notions that I had about audience. I was going to write specifically for a version of myself. I was writing a 25-year-old me book. And so because of that, I put in it exactly what I wanted to read. And I began to cultivate this idea that when we are writing for an audience, specificity will always be better than breadth. I wrote it as weird, as dark, as strange as I wanted, and I had a lot of fun. And the book that came out of that was Vicious. It would go on to restart my career, would go on to open a lot of doors. But really what it did was it taught me from there on every book that I wrote, I would write for an age of myself, whether I'm writing for 10-year-old me with my middle grades, 17-year-old me with my YA, current me with my adults, and made sure that that audience was so hyper-specific. And the more specific I got in my planning of my audience, the larger my actual audience grew. My my, my career really didn't begin as a cartoonist until I was maybe 33, 34. I started Schlock Mercenary when I was 31. Um, And I'm fascinated that—fascinated, and I'm saying this uh, for the benefit of our listeners— that someone at age 25 can feel like their career is over. <laughs> because when I was, well, let, let, me, let me finish. Uh, when I was 25, uh, I had no career in anything yet. Um, and it's not, about, it's not about getting started early. No. It's about doing the thing that you discover you want to do. And with Schlock Mercenary, I think I was about 32, 33 years old when I realized uh, this comic is working for people because I am writing the thing that I want to read. At the time, the idea that a science fiction comic strip could be funny without making fun of science fiction was a little weird. And that was everything else in the space I was working in was making fun of science fiction. What I was writing, and it took eight years to figure it out with the help of Brandon and Dan, what I was writing was social satire. 
And I didn't know that that's what I loved, but it turned out that it was, and I'm happy I did it. And I do want to preface this with it. I'm going to throw out some what seem like very young ages. I did start in my teens. And so I did put in years from before. I knew I wanted to be an author from age 16. I got my first literary agent at age 19. I was 22 when my first book sold. And one of the reasons I say you can get to 25 and feel like you're ready to quit is because the mortality rate in publishing is very high. And five years in publishing, it's like dog years where I felt like I had been in this for a very long time. Publishing can be kind of demoralizing in that way. Mm -hmm. It's sure that you guys have covered it, and I'm sure we're going to cover it more. Yeah. So for me, I mean, one of the mistakes that I made um, looking back is uh, assuming that I was Brandon Sanderson. (laughs) Don't we all? We've been friends for decades. I have trouble with that. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, we shared an editor at the same time. All these kind of similarities. And so watching your career gave me, you know, not an unrealistic sense of my career, but just an assumption of, oh, this is how a career works, you know, which is not true. And everyone's career is very different. And so I was not setting goals for myself. I was just kind of like, oh, well, I got published a year behind Brandon. Everything's going to also be about a year behind Brandon. And I was not setting goals for myself at all. Uh, And this has nothing to do with relative levels of success, just that I was not proactively planning what my career was going to look like. I was kind of coasting on assumptions and then hit a point where I realized, oh, wait, (laughs) I have to try so much harder than I am trying right now. And so I did sit down and do some goal planning. You know, this is what I'm going to do this year. This is my goal for this series. This is the kind of space that I want to be in next. You know, in a few years from now, I want to expand into this other genre or do these other things. Well, I do want to also say I came at it through a bit of trial by fire and that I started in YA. Mm -hmm. YA is potentially of all of the subgenre and all the classifications, the most cutthroat in that they decide before your book is out whether you have succeeded or failed. It is not a mentally very healthy and and sustainable way to do things. And so I think YA has the highest mortality rate, as I call it, among authors. Uh, They're very, very flash in the pan focused, very what is hot right now and it is not hot tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Whereas one of the best things that I did for myself mentally was was expand out into adult genre, into science fiction and fantasy. And I remember going to my publisher about two weeks after Vicious came out and being like, am I success or am I a failure? And they said, your book just came out two weeks ago. And I said, yes, you've had plenty of time to know. (laughs) And Tor was like, check back in in a year or two. Like, this isn't how we work. And so I do think there's a lot of these things which cause us to feel even lonelier in the process, even lacking in not only role models and ideals, but also simply in peer peer qualities, peer information. We don't share information very willingly. We're taught that everyone is an island unto themselves. It's a very isolation driven process. Yeah, you um, you talk about mortality rate. I've always discussed it as what I call wavelength. Uh, mm-hmm. Certain genres have bigger peaks and bigger valleys mm-hmm. um, just because of how many books are being released and the potential audiences and things like that. And YA, I've noticed, man, um, if you get kind of a, um, a staple in, in adult science fiction fantasy, it sells much longer, has a much longer tail. But that peak sometimes can be a lot lower yeah. than in than in YA. Um, I like that you're you're all talking about this. Like, I think people, when they hear or read the uh, title for this episode, they're going to think, oh, goals are things like, I want to hit the New York Times list, or I want to, you know, sell this many copies. None of us are talking about goals like that. 
Um, we're talking about if I, what are my goals? When I set goals, my goals are usually daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly word count goals. Um, I actually have a spreadsheet and every day I have the spreadsheet showing me how much I've done, how much is left. Um, the average I would have to write each working day if I want to finish by this date. Mm-hmm. That's a really useful uh, word count for me because I know if it gets too high, then I have to change my date because it becomes beyond what I can do in a given day sustainably. Isn't that more of a Ravenclaw thing? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, you I just a another day. Well, I <laughs> yes. think this is really interesting. <laughs> And I do want to bring it up because I think you and I, Brennan, mm-hmm. have very opposite tactics, but we both measure, yeah. which is that I used to measure word count. But some days, mm-hmm. as, as everyone who listens to this, and I'm sure all of you know, you can work for eight hours that day. Mm-hmm. You can do a huge amount of legwork on your story, and you can achieve very few words. And so earlier, about a year and a half ago, I switched from word count to time spent. Mm-hmm. And it's not quite as reliable for hitting a very specific deadline, but I found that from the mental health perspective and from a productivity perspective, right. creating a lower threshold of what I need to accomplish in order to feel like I'm succeeding uh, creates a much more diminished self-loathing and then allows me to, conversely, be far more productive in any given day. Yeah, and this is definitely something you have to do individually because I don't have that worry. You know, I don't have that... Um, what is if, if I'm recording every day and I hit a period where they're low word counts, that's important for me to know because it means that I need to look at the story and I, something's wrong, right? If I'm doing low word counts, if I'm doing low word counts once in a while, the average word count I need to hit in order to hit this goal doesn't change very much because it's over time. But I don't have this, you know, like if I'm not productive, like the, do you I have my self-loathing existential crisis yeah, that comes I, with I don't end up having that, but yeah. a lot of people do. That's very, very common. Well, it is. It's very common, but I think this gets back to the point you were making before that, which is when we are talking about goals, we are being very careful to con- to confine it to goals that are in our control as creators yes. because we all know that there are so many facets of this industry and so many factors that will never be in your control. And it is really fun to dwell on those instead of doing your work. I, yeah. I want to... I want to offer a goal here, which may sound a little negative at first. Um, when I, I was talking years ago with uh, with Jay Lake, who has since passed away, um, he's one of my favorite people because he introduced me at Worldcon to other people by saying he's writing the best science fiction comic that exists. And I was like, who is this guy? And how did I end up on his friends list? Um, but he told me that, yeah, the average career length for people in this field, not career length for the people whose names maybe you know from seeing them on the bookshelves forever, but for people who get published and then go on to do other things was like five to seven years. Mortality. And yeah, the the mortality rate. And, And then he told me, Howard, you've been doing this for 12 years. You're a fixture, except he began... He, he inserted a adjective before <laughs> fixture. And it made me feel wonderful, but it was also a little terrifying uh, because the career goal that I didn't have and the one that I'm offering to all of you is I want, when this career ends, I, I'm going to accept that it, it may end at some point. I want to know what I want to do next. I want to live my life in such a way. I want to do this career in such a way that when it draws to a close, it doesn't draw to a close in a panic. It draws to a close because I still have a plan. This is fascinating to me. I just celebrated a decade in publishing. Like I celebrated it like yeah. I had hit like my like hundredth birthday. I was so excited <laughs> about it. And because I think I did that because around six or seven years in, people started calling me an overnight success. Mm. And I was mm-hmm. 
amazed and insulted because I think we have this idea, we love to fetishize the metrics, the metrics of success, which are not in an author's control. And in so doing, erase a huge amount of the work that is going to create where you are at that point. And so I think that's one of the reasons we'll always be focusing or we try to recenter this on the minutia of the daily word count goals or of the annual creativity goals or of the hopes for the longevity or shape of our career or the caveat plans that we make. Because like you, the same way that you write a book one word at a time, you get through and you make a career one word at a time, one year at a time, you find ways to stay in it. And look like five years in, right around the time that I sold Vicious, I also did a work for hire project for Scholastic. I found other ways to stay in the career because a day job in writing was still going to give me an opportunity to be be writing. I think sometimes we get too purity focused on like, you're either a full-time writer, you're not a real writer at all. And the fact is like, there are so many shapes that these careers take. There are so many seasons that they go through. And there are so many hills and valleys, uh, even on an escalation towards whatever we call success. You're still going to have years where you feel like you didn't do as much, where you feel like you're your position wasn't as high, regardless of where you are. And I think that can be very ungrounding. Yeah. And so I think focusing on what are our individual, what, what are our goals when we're writing a book? What are our goals for the next step in, in front of us? Because really, that's all we can really contain. One of the best writers I know, uh, flat out best writers I know, has never sold a book. Um, and this is partially because lots of health issues, some mental health issues, mean that for her, simply writing every week is a fight and a struggle in writing something good. And she keeps going mm-hmm. and has kept going for 20 years and writes amazing, fantastic stuff where the war for her is not, will I hit the bestseller list? Will I hit that? It is, do I get my writing done this week through all the other things that in my life that are so difficult? And uh, she's really inspiring because yeah. of that. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, let's stop for our book of the week, which is Ghost Station. Ghost Station. So, <clears throat> this is mine. About four years ago, as I started to realize, oh, I have hit the end of a phase of my career and I did not plan for a second phase. What am I going to do now? Um, That's when I sat down. And like I said earlier, I started to look at genre. And this is a weird thing for me to say because I'm already in like four uh, different ones. But I decided part of my career goal, my career plan was I wanted to move into something wildly different and reach an entirely separate audience that I had not yet been reaching. And I love historical fiction, so I started writing historical fiction. And it took me a couple of tries to get it right. But last November came out as an Audible original book called Ghost Station, which is my historical thriller cryptographers in Berlin in 1961, about uh, two months after the wall goes up. And they're trying to figure out what's going on, and they're trying to reach their double agent on the other side, and it's all just Cold War thriller. And it's totally different from everything I've written before, but I loved it and I love everything about it. And I'm hoping that this can build a new phase of career for me. And that's an Audible original. So if you have an Audible subscription, it's one of the freebies that you can get every month. Is that what Um, that is? It's not not necessarily going to be free. Okay. But you can get it dirt cheap. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, because I think with your subscription, they have some weird thing. So go look at that, mm-hmm. but it's, in audio, it's audio original. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so a year after it releases, so next November, we'll mm-hmm. be able to bring out a print edition of it. But Excellent. for now, it is audio exclusive, and they've done a fantastic job with it. So kind of coming at this topic from a different direction, we have two questions here asking basically the same thing. How do you balance writing what you love versus aiming for mass appeal? Um, I like this question because a lot of our listeners might be thinking, man, I wish I had Dan Wells' problem. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> man, I have to have four different careers going. They're like, I'd like to have one. So backing it up to aspiring writers. Yeah, I have very complicated feelings on this, and I'll try and articulate them well. But I was actually thinking about what you were saying, Dan, and I was thinking about the nature of your career, Brandon, and I was thinking about the way that I fall somewhere very specifically between them, which is I was thinking about author brand right? The thing is like all of your books ran and happen inside a universe that you have designed. And so they all have a connective thread. Very few of my books have a connective thread, but I feel like we have, we both have an author brand. The idea that my readers can go from my middle grade, my YA, my adult, they can pick any of the books. They're still going to feel like me. And then you're talking about the fact that you're, you're entering into a genre that you haven't written in before, but I've now read your work in several genres. And I would say that your books always feel like you. And so I, I know I would be completely inauthentic to say, just write what you love. Never think about audience, never think about brand. Cause even when I'm thinking about audience, it's, it's me but I'm thinking about very specific versions of me targeted to very specific audiences. I think one of the greatest things you can do as a creator is begin to think about what your through line is between your books. Is there something that kind of Pied Piper leads readers from one to the next? Is there a reason that readers should not see a series fandom, should not stick with you for only one series, but should follow you from book to book? Because I think that's one of the great challenges that authors have, perhaps when they start with a series or a trilogy and they finish that trilogy and they go to write a new thing and they haven't cultivated an author brand and so they have a series brand and people don't follow. Um, Next week, uh, we're going to be talking with uh, uh, Pat Rothfuss about prose. And it just occurred to me that, and this is, you know, hearkening back to uh, stuff that we said last month about the, uh, the, the voyage, you know, point A to point B, um, the story that you want to tell may well be that voyage, that point A to point, point B. Um, what kind of person takes that trip in a sports car? What kind of reader takes it in a minivan? What kind of reader takes it in a four-wheel drive truck? The prose that you use, the words that you use, the pacing that you use to tell your story, I think that is going to have more bearing on the market than the point A to point B. Absolutely. And so being true to yourself may be what kind of story do I want to tell? And then and then market chasing is how am I going to tell it? Let me give an example of this from my own work. And this is not something that I had realized was my through line until a reader pointed it out that in all of my books, there is a character who is obsessed with something and you get very deeply into it, whether that is serial killer lore or virology in the partial series or computer programming in the Mirador series. Even my middle grade is essentially a hard science fiction as a kid learns about space travel and, uh, you know, microgravity. And so what I have realized since then is, oh, my characters tend to get really excited about something. They delve super deep into it. And that is what excites me as an author. And so I can write in anything. That's why I wrote a book about cryptographers because they get super excited and enthused and we learn all the stuff about cryptography, but then there's a totally different story around it. 
Yeah. And I definitely think if I'm looking at similarity, I have 16 books. And the thing is that they're all about all kinds of different things. The two things they all have in common is that they're weird. Like they're not realism. They have some kind of thing that's left of center. But also I try to balance the accessibility of the prose with the poetry of the prose that I like. I am really interested in writing books that convince people that they don't like a genre that they do like the genre. And so I'm very much about finding that central space that doesn't alienate, but opens the door and says, come in. Like, I know you don't know if you like this space. I know you find this space daunting, but I love being an entry point into a deeper space of the genre. And for me, a lot of that comes down to, as, as Howard was saying too, the way I tell my stories. I specifically gear them toward a central audience that is perhaps a little bit wider, a little less niche. And I do that because I know once I can get them in the room, I can tell whatever story I want, but I want to get them in the room first. We are a little over time, so we're <laughs> going we're gonna to wrap it here. We could probably keep talking about this forever, but uh, Victoria, you have some homework for us. I do have some homework, and we've been talking in this episode about making sure you not only have goals, but that those goals are delineated between things in your control and things out of your control. An exercise that I actually go through um, with my agent every year and that I did before I was agented as well is called the 1510. I sit down because I love making lists. I feel like most of us really like making lists, gives us a false sense of control over the universe. <laughs> and I make goals of what do I want to achieve in one years, in five years, and in 10 years? Where do I want to be? And thinking of it that way allows me to look at my most immediate goals, finishing a project that I'm working on. Maybe the five-year allow me to shift my place in what kind of stories I'm writing or take on something that's a bit of a daring challenge. And the 10-year starts being about career, starts being about the shape of the imprint that you're making and the goals that you hope to go. And I think it's really important. I want you to try and make three lists, a one, a five, and a 10. And I want you to be ambitious, but I really want you to try and keep those goals to things that you can actively influence and control. If you need to make a second list of one five tens for hopes and dreams, that is absolutely fine. But I think it's really important that we don't conflate the metrics, metrics of success, like hitting a bestseller list or selling X number of copies that the industry controls so much of with the things that we can actually control as creators. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 